Former President Donald Trump wins the Republican Iowa caucus in a landslide. It's Tuesday, January 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished yesterday's race in a distant second place. Now Nikki Haley is counting on moderate Republicans for a chance to beat Trump in next week's New Hampshire primary. We have a country to save, and this is what I will tell you. If you like what I had to say today, go tell 10 people. Also, flight attendants spend a lot of their time helping people board the plane, but they aren't getting paid for most of that time on the ground. It's our most chaotic and the hardest time in our day, and we can have four or five boardings per day. And this hour, John Kerry is leaving his role as climate envoy for the Biden administration. Snow and rain today in the 30s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump overpowered his competitors to decisively win the Iowa Republican caucuses yesterday. He secured more than 50 percent of the vote. Trump used his victory speech last night to attack President Biden instead of criticizing his rivals who finished far behind him. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended up in second place, but insisted he was gaining momentum for the next contest, the New Hampshire primary, next week. In spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. But former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley finished a very close third. The fourth-place candidate, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, suspended his presidential campaign. He has now endorsed Trump. Extreme cold did keep some people away from the first-in-the-nation Republican caucuses. But as Iowa Public Radio's Sheila Brummer reports, turnout was higher than expected in at least one spot in northwest Iowa. At a GOP caucus site in Sioux City, Democrat Chandler Todd switched parties to vote for Nikki Haley and saw a majority of support go to the former president. Some predicted older, rural Trump supporters wouldn't show because of the weather. A cold night, and many people thought a lot of people were going to stay home, and I think that the Trump voters did not stay home stereotypically. Even though the air was dangerously cold, people still came. More than 350 at this spot in Sioux City, an estimated increase of 25% from previous years. But statewide, a different story. Only around 110,000 braved the elements, way off the pace of a normal and warmer caucus night. For NPR News, I'm Sheila Brummer, Sioux City, Iowa. Donald Trump is reportedly set to campaign today in New Hampshire ahead of the primary, but a second defamation trial against him by writer E. Jean Carroll opens today in New York. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has more. A jury already found that Trump is liable for sexually assaulting Carol in a New York department store in the 1990s and that he defamed her when he subsequently called her a liar for going public with her story. That jury ordered Trump to pay $5 million. Now, a second jury will have to decide how much Trump will have to pay Carol for, among other things, saying, while well, president, quote, she's not my type, after she published a book with an account of the assault. Because the incident in this trial took place earlier, the amount of damages could be much higher. Trump says he wants to testify in his defense. That testimony and a verdict could come next week. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Bitterly cold weather is spreading from the U.S. border with Canada down to the U.S. border with Mexico. Wind chills in Brownsville, Texas will plunge to about 10 degrees above zero today. It's far more life-threatening in the northern central plains. South Dakota wind chills will fall to about 40 degrees below zero. Winter weather in the U.S. has killed about nine people over the past several days. 
You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. This morning's snowfall is prompting a winter weather advisory for eastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. As WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce explains, snow and rain will cause slick road conditions for drivers today. Areas of snow will continue today, mixing with sleet and rain from midday through the afternoon from the city south to Cape Cod, perhaps a bit farther inland too for a time. Everything winds down 4 to 6 p.m. Snow totals generally 2 to 4 inches for most of us, an inch or two in Boston and the South Shore. According to an inch on Cape Cod, a few higher totals possible outside of 495. Plows and crews are out. Take it slow, leave extra space. Some slippery areas will remain through the evening, especially north and west of Boston. Temperatures drop this evening, too, actually into the teens and 20s tonight, so everything will freeze up and we don't get out of the upper 20s tomorrow. Iowa voters have had their say. Now the focus in the race for the Republican presidential nomination turns to the New Hampshire primary. Voting there will take place one week from today. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, Nikki Haley is counting on moderate Republicans and independents to deliver an upset victory over Donald Trump. Voters like Marie Mulroy of Manchester might represent the key to a Haley victory. She's an unenrolled independent voter who opposes Donald Trump. He doesn't have a moral compass. I don't understand how anybody could vote for him. Mulroy supported Joe Biden in 2020, but she's so concerned Trump could win the nomination and return to the White House that she plans to pull a Republican ballot next week and vote for Haley, whom she sees as more moderate than the former president. She has some of what he has, but she also has the ability to get elected to beat Trump. And the primary goal is not to ever let Trump back in office again, to be honest. Recent polls suggest Haley is peaking at just the right time in New Hampshire and is within striking distance of Trump. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Massachusetts's early literacy programs rank moderately well compared to other states nationwide. That's according to a new report by the National Council on Teacher Training. The report praises Massachusetts' criteria for teachers working with students learning English. The same report considers Maine's early literacy policies unacceptable. Former Patriots head coach Bill Belichick is one step closer to another coaching job. Last night, the Atlanta Falcons announced they interviewed Belichick for their head coach opening. This is the first known interview Belichick has had since parting ways with the Patriots last week. He was with the Pats for 24 years. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. The Celtics are celebrating a nine-point win on the road in Toronto. They defeated the Raptors 105-96. They have tonight off before returning home to face the San Antonio Spurs tomorrow. The Bruins shut out the New Jersey Devils yesterday at the Garden. Final score was 3-0. And a recap of your forecast. Snow is expected to continue into the early afternoon, eventually mixing with street sleet and rain. An inch or two is expected to fall in Boston and along the south shore with up to four inches possible. In places outside of 495, high temperatures will reach the mid-30s. Tonight, the snow will likely stop in the early evening hours with skies clearing into the night. Temperatures will drop into the teens and 20s. Tomorrow, sunny skies, but it'll be cold and windy. High temperatures will only reach the upper 20s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
is democracy still America's sacred cause? He's a threat to democracy. We all know who Donald Trump is. They've weaponized government. He's saying, I'm a threat to democracy. The question we have to answer is, who are we? We're teetering on the brink of World War III. And I am the only candidate in this race who's up to the task of saving America from every single Biden disaster. Democrats want Trump to be the candidate. They are going to talk about all the legal stuff. January 6th, that will be what the election will be about. Chaos follows him, and we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. Nobody told me the road would be easy. I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin on this morning after the Iowa caucuses. There you just heard the voices of President Biden, former President Trump, and his Republican rivals, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. It was a strong showing for Trump last night, which is the first time voters actually got to vote. President Trump handily won the Iowa caucuses, taking the early wind out of the sails of his closest rivals, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. So what's next for Trump? New Hampshire. He has got the momentum he wanted, but it is a different test in the Granite State with a high percentage of moderate Republicans and independent voters. NPR's Franco Ordonez is covering the campaign, and he's here to talk about Trump's next steps and what could be a defining race of this primary season. Good morning, Franco. Good morning, Michelle. Okay, so Iowa went pretty much according to script. It went pretty much according to what the polls were saying would happen, but New Hampshire is different. What is so key about this first primary for Trump? Well, I mean, Trump has always dominated the polls in Iowa, but that's just not the case in New Hampshire. And that's because while, you know, Iowa Republicans are, you know, made up largely of conservatives and evangelical Christians, New Hampshire Republicans include many moderates and independents. I mean, roughly 40% of voters in New Hampshire are undeclared. Also, New Hampshire has a lot of very well-educated voters. And Trump does better with voters who do not have college degrees. So he's just got a lot more vulnerabilities in New Hampshire. Are are there any parallels that can be drawn from Iowa that could apply to New Hampshire? I mean, of course, it is a different electorate. But, you know, I was, you know, watching, you know, last night, you know, kind of all those precincts in the Iowa suburbs where there are more moderate Republicans. You know, in Haley and DeSantis, they did better in the suburbs where voters are more college-educated, affluent, moderate, more like New Hampshire. But Trump basically won those groups, too. I mean, he won almost every single county. So that could bode well for him going into New Hampshire as well. And also, he got a bump for from Vivek Ramaswamy, who dropped out and endorsed Trump. Does any of this affect his strategy in New Hampshire? You know, Trump's very well aware of Haley's rising status in New Hampshire, the poll momentum she's had. And that's why you've heard him, you know, increasing his attacks. You saw that on the campaign ads. You saw that on the trail. You know, and he's likely to shift his message a bit as well for New Hampshire voters. I spoke with Brian Lanza. He's a former Trump aide who is still close to the campaign. You know, he spoke of New Hampshire being a small government state, you know, no sales tax, no income tax. So you can expect to hear Trump going forward touting his record of cutting taxes. But Lanza says a more effective strategy may just be capitalizing on the momentum that he has, you know, taking the importance out of New Hampshire. So you start talking about where you're winning everywhere else and how you're beating Joe Biden. And and Nikki Haley's, you know, she's running in third place in her home state of South Carolina. I mean, that's the message you sort of tell is even her own state doesn't trust her. 
they trust President Trump more. You know, what he's saying, Michelle, is that arguing that this is all a foregone conclusion. So you might as well get on board. And that's how he says you devalue what New Hampshire means. You know, one of the things that's been really noteworthy is how the former president has campaigned very differently than his rivals have. I mean, Ron DeSantis made a point of going to every county in Iowa. Trump certainly didn't do that. You know, sort of very little presence there. A lot of spending in the state. But, you know, Trump just hasn't been very visible. I'm just wondering what whether that changes in New Hampshire. Yeah, Trump has not been very visible in New Hampshire, especially compared to Nikki Haley, who's been all over. You know, but he has stacked his schedule over the next several days, so it is going to be different. He is expected to stop first today in New York to attend the Jean Carroll defamation hearing, you know, which is just another illustration of how his legal troubles are so intertwined with his campaign. But then he's got, you know, a busy schedule in New Hampshire. He's going to speak tonight in Atkinson, New Hampshire. That's going to be followed by rallies in Portsmouth and then Concord and then this weekend Manchester and then Rochester. You know, I think it's another indication that he recognizes how important New Hampshire is. He does, though, again, have the momentum coming out of Iowa. You know, he's long wanted a big dominant win in Iowa and New Hampshire. He wants to shut out his competition and stop everyone else's momentum. You know, he's halfway there. But there are a lot of forces against Trump in New Hampshire, including the governor, Chris Sununu, who see the state as the last best chance to stop Trump. That is NPR's Franco Ordonez. Franco, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. We're going to stick with the story for a few more minutes with Nathan Gonzalez. He's editor and publisher of the Inside Elections newsletter, which offers nonpartisan analysis of political campaigns, not just the presidential race, but also House, Senate, and governor's races and so forth. Nathan, welcome. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for pointing out there are other elections beyond the presidential race. <laughs> well, so let's, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about just what happened in Iowa last night, and then we can talk about what uh, what else might happen in some of these other races. Looking at election at, at Iowa over the past few cycles, how much do the results tell us about how the winning candidate might do in the coming months? Well, Iowa has not been predictive of the of the Republican presidential nominee or who is going to become the next president. I mean, Ted Cruz uh, defeated Donald Trump in 2016 in a race there. Then going further back, Mike Huckabee, uh, Rick Santorum. And so the, maybe the good news for last night for Iowa was that it might actually predict or it might actually be voting for who the eventual nominee is going to be. But uh, New Hampshire and Iowa splitting the results is common. And I know we've been talking about New Hampshire and how uh, if, if Nikki Haley is able to pull off an upset there, I, I think that that might be a hiccup on Trump's road to the nomination rather than the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. So, you know, many words have been said about this subject. So but I'm just going to ask you, how do you explain Donald Trump's enduring appeal, especially when he did not spend as much time in the state as the other candidates did? And typically, these small states, that, that's one of the reasons they like going first, because they get to see these guys and gals up close and personal, lots of money spent on ads and so forth. He didn't do any of that. So how do you explain? Yeah. I think we can get rid of the narrative that retail politics is required to win Iowa. The two candidates who spent the most time in Iowa, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, finished second and fourth, and Ramaswamy didn't even make it through the night. I think Trump is still a voice for voters who feel like they don't have a voice. I think that's how he came to uh, popularity within the Republican Party. And things have changed. He, he's been president for four years. He's been indicted more than 90 times. A lot, things have changed, but uh, but he's still that voice and he's still the anti-establishment you know, anti outsider that voters, Republicans, think, uh, you know, think that they want. Any sense of how Trump's candidacy is affecting 
people who are running in other races. And I'm going to bring our colleague Sue Davison back to talk about that as well. But what's your sense of it? Yeah, I mean, the, Re- the Republican Party has rallied behind Trump almost universally. I mean, if you're running for the United States Senate, you want to endorse him and be and have his endorsement in order to get through a Republican primary. You know that you need his supporters in order to win your own race. And so um, there, there are, I, I, it's hard to even count a handful of Republicans in notable races who are running explicitly against Trump because they know they might not win out of the primary and they need those Trump supporters to win a general election. So let's turn to national political correspondent Susan Davis, who's, who is with us. Susan, good morning. Good morning. Okay, but as, look, people who, the, the, let's call it the non-Trump wing of the Republican Party likes to point out, Trump cost the party seats in 2018, 2020, 2022, and Trump-like candidates haven't fared very well in um, competitive races around the country, especially in really important states like Michigan, for example. So so what, what's your sense of that? What's your sense of the effect on other candidates? Well, there is evidence, and the evidence is that Trump can often have a down-ballot drag. And I think, particularly in the context of 2024, this is important to remember, I think, that Election denialism is going to play a factor in 2024 if Donald Trump is the nominee. He continues to falsely maintain that the election was stolen from him. And frankly, it has penetrated Republican voters in this country, where the vast majority of Republican voters also believe that the falsely believe that the election was stolen. And so that creates a bind for Republican general election candidates, where you cannot run and win with a Trump endorsement if you if you contradict him on that fact. And if you don't run that way, you're likely to see lower base turnout, but it is provided Democrats significant opportunities to uh, defend races that they might otherwise lose. And uh, as Nathan noted, there are both the House and the Senate are in contention in 2024, and the makeup of that Congress will be hugely consequential to who the next president is. But there is no evidence that would suggest that Trump continuing to run on a message of election denialism and a party that now has to adhere to that position can fare well in a general election. Let's bring senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith in to talk about this as well. Tam, how is the White House speaking about that? I mean, election denialism is something that we heard President Biden talk about. We've heard him talk about it. But is that also a campaign issue for them? Oh, that is central to the president's campaign for re-election. Uh, because President Trump, former President Trump, denied the outcome of the last election, uh, that is, becomes a democracy issue. That becomes a, you know, uh, when you lose, admitting that you lose and exiting stage left is a fundamental tenet of American democracy. And that is a huge part of President Biden's argument. I will say, interestingly, President Biden has also started referring to President Trump as a loser, uh, which is an insult that President Trump uh, uses like breathing. He uses it all the time. And it is in his mind, the largest insult you could throw at someone to say that you're a loser rather than a winner. Uh, And now President Biden is using that. His campaign says, oh, that's not a troll. That's just a statement of fact. That is senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith. We were also joined by national political correspondent Susan Davis and Nathan Gonzalez, editor and publisher of Inside Elections, which, which provides nonpartisan analysis of campaigns. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, former President Donald Trump is expected to be in a New York courtroom most of this week for a trial that'll determine how much he has to pay writer E. Jean Carroll in damages. It's 719. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. 
Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. I'm Robin Young. New parents are paying up to $300 for new baby monitors that measure breathing and heart rate. Pediatricians caution these aren't medical devices. They want to guarantee. They want to know their baby's always going to be safe. In that regard, it, it can't. It can't give that assurance. Also, what's up with toddler formula? Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. There's a winter weather advisory in effect as snow continues to fall across the region and it's expected to keep falling through the afternoon. The snow may be mixed with rain and sleet at times this afternoon and roads may be slippery and icy in spots. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Up to two inches of snow is expected in all for Boston and along the south shore. Outside of 495, up to four inches are possible. The snow tapers off tonight as temperatures fall to the upper teens and low 20s. Clearing skies overnight make way for a sunny day tomorrow, but highs will only be in the upper 20s. It's 26 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Deloitte. Advancing the future takes more than a business angle or a technology angle. It takes both. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. It's a busy morning here in Studio 31 in Washington, D.C. Michelle Martin and I are here. Uh, Tamara Keith is in the studio. We've got guests coming and going on this morning after the Iowa caucuses. And former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker is on the line. Uh, we've called him to talk about the caucuses that Donald Trump dominated last night and what is to come. Governor, welcome. Hey, good morning. Good to be with you. I think we have to remind people, even though it's a little unpleasant to, to mention for you, I guess, that Donald Trump beat a field that included you back in 2016. What do you make of his win in Iowa this time? Yeah, and I should qualify. I was the smart one. I got out of that race before I got to <laughs> <laughs> No one actually the, voted uh, against you. Good point. But go on. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, but in terms of Iowa, exactly what I expected. A uh, weekly column I put out last week said he's going to win probably with uh, just over 50 percent of the vote in the real race for who was in second. I thought DeSantis would be, but it would be close. Uh, but needless to say, winning by over that, I think this is probably DeSantis's last stand. Uh, he had put all of his campaign effort, his pack had been heavily engaged in here. Uh, the true test now will be how far does Governor Haley go on. I, I think she probably win or e either wins or comes close to winning New Hampshire just because of how the polls have to uh, tightened and because of uh, Chris Christie getting out of the race. I would imagine most, not all, but most of those votes will go his way. But even if she's closer wins, a few weeks later in South Carolina in February, even in her home state, uh, Donald Trump's probably going to win there convincingly and then all the remaining caucuses and primaries. So 
Uh, it's not done yet, but it's pretty close. Well, let, let's talk about what that means. Our correspondent Susan Davis a short time ago alluded to a basic reality, which is that Donald Trump lost the election in 2020. And this is not something you have to rely on me about. Thousands of election officials from both parties affirmed the results. Dozens of courts heard challenges and rejected them all. Even after that, there were audits for years in places like Arizona and still found that Trump lost the election. And I know you've been reality-based, Governor. You noted that in Wisconsin, where Trump tried for a recall, that he was not close enough to, to have a chance there. That wasn't going to work. So with all of that reality on the table, as far as you know, how are Republican voters thinking about their support for a candidate who has built his entire campaign around a really well-verified falsehood? Well, I think most voters are actually motivated not by that, but by what was accomplished during his four years in office. I think for most of them, I would think, you know, you, you heard different things in the attacks, but most Republican voters think Ron DeSantis did a solid job in Florida. Most Republican voters think Nikki Haley uh, was a good ambassador for the United Nations. So it wasn't attacks on them and preference that way over Trump. I think more than anything in the primary, and I would say even among some swing voters in states like mine, there's a feeling amongst voters that they're tired of politicians, of candidates who say all the right things and then go to Washington and backtrack from the things they promised when they were campaigning. Conversely, with Donald Trump, he doesn't always talk or tweet the way many of us do, certainly in the Midwest, but elsewhere. But in the end, he actually did overwhelmingly the things they said during the campaign table. So I think that's the draw. It's not about the last election. It, it, it really, for most for Trump, and I just go by his own words, the sheer volume of his own words, for him it is absolutely about the last election, about relitigating the last election. Oh, as I don't a professional, with what he's As a professional saying, politician, do you think, think he's going to, he can even be an effective president, given that this is his approach? Well, if, if, if his focus is on the last election, the, ultimately, uh, the, best, the best way to redeem himself on that is to win. And so, I felt all along, if it's a referendum on, on the economy, um, people are fed up, even young people. We see it at Young America's Foundation. Number one issue, the polling we do at college students, is mm -hmm. the economy. And on that, uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, is extremely vulnerable. Yeah. I hope that the, that the former president, if he wants to be the future president, needs to put his time and attention on what's gone wrong and make the contrast. Give you a good example. I've got a son and daughter-in-law who are trying to buy a house. For them, they're going to pay an extra $1,500 a month more in mortgage payments than what they would have paid back before uh, Joe Biden took office. Those are real numbers. Those are real realities for a lot of young people and people in general across America. Okay, that is absolutely It's true about mortgage rates going up. I would agree with that. But let me just ask one other thing here. Michelle Martin noted a little bit earlier in the program that the rest of the Republican Party has done poorly. Uh, in this period when Donald Trump has dominated. They lost the House in 2018. They lost the Senate in 2020. They underperformed in 2022. What are the risks, if any, of Trump as a nominee if he were to win the nomination again in 2024? Well, again, I think if the focus on the economy in 2022, every Republican governor in America was up for re-election won convincingly. And okay. I think that's the lesson. If you learn anything from the last few years is look at what they ran on, Look at the focus about a plan to get America working again, to get us back on the right track. It worked at the state level. I think if the former president, if he's the nominee, which looks like he is, if he focuses on, hey, life was life was pretty good uh, when I was president, particularly before COVID, we can make that happen again. Here's our plan and contrast that with what's happening with 
President Joe Biden, I think he's got a real shot, at Form least in battleground states like mine. Former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And our political correspondent, Susan Davis, has been listening. Sue, what do you make of that? You know, one of the points that the governor made that I think is very valid and a big red sign, flashing warning sign for the Biden campaign is young voters. Uh, polling after polling after polling shows how much uh, lack of enthusiasm young voters, depending on how you define it, but generally speaking, people in the 18 to 30 or 18 to 35 range, they feel uniquely pessimistic about the state and future of the country. They're really sour on Joe Biden. Polls would even indicate that they are more competitive uh, with Donald Trump than any Republican candidate has been in recent years years. And enthusiasm is going to be a huge issue in this race, when, especially if it's essentially two incumbents that the country doesn't like very much. Uh, how to overcome that enthusiasm and get people to show up to vote is going to be one of the core challenges for either candidate, frankly, in 2024. Tamara Keith, covering the White House as you do, do you think that the people around Biden acknowledge they have a problem with younger voters? They do acknowledge it. They also acknowledge that they have a challenge with uh, African-American and Latino voters, that there's softness in that part of their base and that they need to work on that. Um, and then they consider independent voters to be a persuasion target. Okay, NPR's Tamara Keith and Susan Davis, and we continue our live coverage on this morning after the Iowa caucuses, which Donald Trump dominated. It's NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition. We'll look at John Kerry's legacy as he leaves his position as climate envoy for the Biden administration. It's 729. New England Patriots announced they'd move up Gerard Mayo to head coach to replace the legendary Bill Belichick. Mayo is half his age, black, and has the full faith of the team's owners. Robert Kraft was so committed to Gerard Mayo that he essentially made him head coach in waiting. I'm Juana Summers. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Former President Donald Trump won yesterday's Iowa caucuses easily, capturing more than 50 percent of the vote as he seeks the Republican presidential nomination. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished a distant second. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley came in third. Sheila Brummer with Iowa Public Radio says DeSantis and Haley continue to focus on those who don't want Trump back in the White House. DeSantis and Haley supporters, they say the country needs someone else who doesn't have all that baggage. And there was even one person that said, you know what, I did support Trump in 2016 and 2020, but I'm moving on to a different candidate. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy finished fourth in Iowa and announced he's suspending his GOP presidential campaign. NPR's Elena Moore has more. Ramaswamy campaigned on being a political outsider. The biotech entrepreneur ran on a far-right, quote, America First platform, often aligning with former President Trump. But after receiving just under 8% of the total vote, Ramaswamy announced he was suspending his campaign. In his remarks last night, Ramaswamy also endorsed Trump. At 38 years old, the businessman was the youngest major Republican candidate in the GOP primary race. Elena Moore, NPR News. The Republican race now shifts to next week's New Hampshire primary. This is NPR News from Washington.
This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Another round of multi-day closures along the T's Green Line begins today. Day-long shutdowns impact the B, C, D, and E branches. Each of those closures begin at North Station. They stretch between the Babcock, Heath Street, and Kenmore stops. Shuttle buses will replace the B, C, and D branches. E branch riders can take the 39 bus from Heath Street to Back Bay. Massachusetts gas prices are at the lowest levels in five months. AAA Northeast puts the current average price for a gallon of gas in the state at $3.13. Spokesperson Mark Shieldrop says the lower prices are partly because of strong inventory and weak demand. Part of that might be more fuel efficiency in the overall fleet out there. All the cars people drive generally are more fuel efficient than they were some years ago more electric vehicles as well. And we also think people are taking advantage of more flexible work schedules, so more work from home or hybrid work schedules. Shieldrop says drivers in more than half of other U.S. states are paying less than $3 a gallon for regular gas. Some Massachusetts natives won big at last night's Emmy Awards. Dorchester's own Iowa Debery took home the trophy for Outstanding Actress in a Comedy Series. That was for her role in The Bear. Boston native Jennifer Coolidge won for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for her part in The White Lotus. It's 7.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo. Part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. The Celtics were victorious during their road game in Toronto last night. They beat the Raptors 105-96. to The Seas have tonight off. They'll return home to take on the San Antonio Spurs tomorrow. The Bruins are also celebrating a win against the New Jersey Devils. Their game at the Garden yesterday ended in a 3-0 shutout. Snow is expected to fall throughout the day today. It may be mixed with rain and sleet this afternoon. And there's a winter weather advisory in effect. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Boston and the South Shore may see one to two inches of accumulation. Outside of 495, we may see up to four inches. The snow slowly tapers off this evening as it falls to the low 20s and upper teens, clearing overnight and sunny tomorrow with highs in the upper 20s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food from employee meal plans to on-site staffing with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Fresh off his Iowa caucus victory, former President Trump goes on trial again today in New York. This trial is a civil suit brought by the writer E. Jean Carroll. It is the second such case to go to trial. Trump was already found liable last year for sexually assaulting Carroll in order to pay her $5 million. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has been covering Carroll's litigation, and she is with us now to explain all this. Good morning. Good morning. So, Andrea, so this is, let me just make sure I understand this. This is a second case, not a continuation of the first case. Why are there two E. Jean Carroll defamation cases? 
Both of the actions stem from an encounter Carol had with Donald Trump in the 1990s in a dressing room in the Bergdorf Goodman's department store. According to a jury finding in the first case to go to trial, by a preponderance of the evidence, Trump was found liable for sexually assaulting Carol by penetrating her against her will. In a ruling last week, the trial judge went even further, saying, quote, the fact that Mr. Trump sexually abused, indeed raped Ms. Carroll, has been conclusively established. Decades after the assault, while Trump was president, Carroll published a book about it. Trump denied it and then defamed her, saying, she's not my type. That's the case that's going to trial today. So is the former president expected to be at this trial? Trump did not attend the first trial at all, and the testimony was pretty graphic. Not only did Carol testify about the assault, but so did other women who say Trump sexually attacked them. So it might seem, with a rally scheduled almost every night this week in New Hampshire, Trump would stay away. But no, he says he wants to attend and he wants to testify. His lawyers tried to get the trial postponed again, claiming he had to travel for his wife's mother's funeral. But after Carol's lawyers pointed out he had a rally scheduled on one of the days he wanted to be off for the funeral, the judge denied that request. Has, has Trump indicated what he's going to say in his defense? That, that issue has been hotly contested in legal filings by lawyers on both sides. His lawyers say he should be able to talk about the circumstances surrounding the defamatory statements, what reporters had asked him, whether he was acting with hatred or ill will. But the judge has strongly admonished Trump not to try to claim he didn't assault Carol. Carol's lawyers already referred to Trump's outburst in the business fraud trial last week when a judge told him he couldn't speak because he wouldn't agree to follow the rules, and then Trump did anyway, attacking both the New York attorney general and the judge. Carol's lawyers say that happens in this case. There should be severe sanctions. And because this is a jury trial and it's in federal court in front of a no-nonsense judge, there could be. When do we expect a verdict? So the trial goes today, tomorrow, Thursday, possibly Monday, but will almost certainly end then. In the last E. Jean Carroll case, the verdict came back in just a couple of hours, so it could be fast. And remember, we're just talking about how much money Trump will have to pay, not if he did it. We could see right around the time of the New Hampshire primary his order to pay tens of millions of dollars for defamation after a sexual assault. And he separately faces having to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for business fraud in a verdict that is also expected this month. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Andrea, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, I got to travel a lot for work. And with all that travel, here's something I didn't realize. When passengers crowd onto airplanes with the help of flight attendants, many attendants are not being paid for their time. Most do not begin receiving an hourly wage until you hear them say the aircraft doors are now closed. That's a long-standing practice that they would like to change. NPR's Andrea Shu reports. For flight attendants, clocking in and clocking out is not so straightforward. So we have a lot of time in our days that we are unpaid. Julie Hedrick is a flight attendant for American and president of the flight attendants union there. That unpaid time, she says, includes all the hours they spend sitting around in airports waiting for their next flight and all the hours spent getting people and their bags on board and in their seats. It's our most chaotic and the hardest time in our day. 
and we can have four or five boardings per day. Flight attendants across airlines say in recent years, things have only gotten worse. Here's Sarah Nelson, president of the largest flight attendants union, representing workers at United, Alaska, and the other airlines. Every flight is full. Boarding time is much more hectic. There's fewer flight attendants doing that work. Now, the airlines will argue those hours on the ground are, in fact, compensated. Alaska says on its website, contrary to union narratives, we do pay flight attendants for boarding time. I asked Sarah Nelson about that. She says in years past, the union fought for and the airlines agreed to guarantees of minimum pay. Very common today would be one hour of flight time for every two hours on duty. So a simplified example, if you get to the airport early in the morning for your first flight and finish up your day 12 hours later, you are guaranteed six hours of pay, even if you're not in the air for six hours. But Nelson says... That no longer flies because of the way that the flying has changed. Not only are flights more often full, planes have been configured to pack in more seats. Unruly passengers are on the rise. And since 9-11, flight attendants have served as the last line of defense in aviation security. These are significant duties that we have to perform in addition to keeping everybody calm on board. Including during emergencies, as we just saw on that Alaska flight when a panel flew off the plane, leaving a gaping hole. Now, there is one major airline that does pay for boarding time. In 2022, Delta began paying its flight attendants at half their hourly rate. Sarah Nelson says that's not enough. No, absolutely not. Over at American, Julie Hedrick says the union and the airline have agreed on boarding pay similar to Delta's, though they're still pushing on other issues. All of us, of course, feel that we should be paid for the minute that we report to work until we go home. But we have to look at the entire package. Including wages. Her union is pushing for an immediate 33% raise. American has offered 11%. To draw attention to the broader fight, flight attendants have planned a global picket next month. But don't expect a strike anytime soon. That's because under federal law, it's illegal for airline workers to strike unless they get permission from the federal government. American flight attendants recently asked for that permission and were denied, a frustration for Hedrick given the wave of labor actions last year. UAW, UPS, Writers Guild, the Actors Guild, and not that they've all gone on strike, but they've pushed it to that point and they've been able to get the contracts that they deserve. For now, negotiations continue. The airlines say they have offered flight attendants competitive wages and benefits and look forward to further talks. Andrea Shu, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition with the Republican Iowa caucuses now over, we'll look ahead at Nikki Haley's strategy for the coming months, particularly in her home state of South Carolina.
Snow falls throughout the day today. It may be mixed with rain and sleet at times. Boston and the South Shore may see up to two inches. Outside of 495, there may be up to four inches of accumulation. Temperatures will rise to the mid-30s. This evening, the snow tapers off and it falls to the upper teens. Skies clear overnight and stay clear tomorrow for us to enjoy some sun, but it'll be cold with temperatures only in the 20s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away, with over 700 artifacts from the Holocaust, opens this March in Boston, the AuschwitzExhibition.com. Vacant lab space in Greater Boston has hit its highest level since 2005. New data from CBRE shows lab vacancies exceed 10 percent now. Officials tell the Boston Business Journal that may be due to biotech companies that don't want to spend money on lab space amid layoffs. Despite the vacancies, rents have stayed relatively the same. Foxborough-based Kraft Analytic Group has a new partnership with the NCAA. The group will help the NCAA create a college sports fan database. Another goal is to significantly increase the NCAA's reach by 2030. The exact terms of the deal weren't made public. A Cambridge seafood market that's been in business for more than 100 years has closed. Courthouse Fish Market is no longer in business. Owners say their restaurant next to the market will remain open. It's not clear why the market closed. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. John Kerry. American veteran, former senator, former presidential candidate, former secretary of state, is leaving his latest job as the Biden administration's special envoy on climate. This comes after a United Nations climate conference in Dubai, where for the first time, an agreement stated that the world needs to transition away from fossil fuels. Julia Simon of NPR's Climate Desk is covering this story. Julia, good morning. Good morning. Okay, have you confirmed the story here? Yes, we have. NPR confirmed with multiple sources that Kerry, the first ever climate envoy, plans to step down from his role, role he's had for three years. Axios first broke the news over the weekend and reported that he'll step down later in the winter and will play a role in Biden's re-election campaign. Okay, we mentioned that climate conference, but what can uh, Kerry and his office say that they accomplished over the last three years? A lot of his work has come down to China. China and the U.S. are the world's two biggest polluters. Kerry comes in. He has this long-standing relationship with his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinhua. It's been reported that Xi and Kerry talked frequently the last few years. Here's Alex Wong of UCLA Law. 
the relationships between she and Carrie seemed to be important, especially when broader relations were bad. It allowed a continuation even, you know, more informally. So even when U.S.-China relations were rocky around Taiwan, trade, Carrie and Xi found ways to work together on climate. Well, this is an expression of something that the Biden administration has said that they wanted, which was to work with China where they could, even as they were going to be confronting China on certain issues. What did that push? Yeah, China and the U.S. agreed to make progress on reducing methane, this really potent planet heating gas. Both sides agreed to seek to triple renewable energy deployment globally by 2030 to reduce deforestation, which is another driver of climate change. Also, Kerry helped pressure China to stop financing overseas coal projects. I'm interested that you use the word financing. How successful was Kerry at finding the money for developing nations to move away from fossil fuels? Yeah, the U.S. has fallen short on its financial climate contributions internationally. That's why Kerry has tried to leverage the private sector, including big banks. But Kerry's proposal to use carbon offsets to help finance climate action was one of the more controversial aspects of his agenda. Carbon offsets have often been proven to not reduce the emissions they claim. And Kerry also had to reckon with the fact that the U.S. is increasing its production of fossil fuels. The biggest oil producer in the world, Mm -hmm. the U.S. The biggest gas producer in the world, the U.S. Here's Jake Schmidt at the Natural Resources Defense Council. It goes noticed by the rest of the world that the U.S. is sort of talking out of uh, two sides of its mouth at times. Kerry wasn't in charge of some of those pieces, but he had to sort of reconcile those as he was trying to convince other countries to step up their efforts. Schmidt says for whoever succeeds Kerry, what the U.S. does domestically will continue to influence how its diplomacy on climate change is received. I guess saying do as I say, not as I do is a problematic message, to say the least. Julia, thanks so much. Thank you. That's NPR's Julia Simon. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR. Coming up at 820 on Morning Edition, after months of delays, TV's highest honors were given out at the 75th Emmy Awards last night. And Massachusetts was well represented among the winners. It's 749. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Former President Donald Trump has won the Republican Iowa caucuses by a landslide, with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis taking second place. Trump is also expected to be in court for much of this week to determine how much he owes writer E. Jean Carroll for defamation. And much of the East Coast, including Massachusetts, is facing dangerously cold temperatures amidst another winter storm. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Museum, feel the power of play with sock skating, fun activities in the Polar Playground, and over 20 exhibits to explore. BostonChildrensMuseum.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. When is coming in second a major win? Maybe if you're running for president against a political behemoth like Donald Trump. At least that's how Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis is seeing his second place showing against Trump in Iowa. At the very least, it's keeping DeSantis's presidential bid alive. We've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. Joining us to tell us more about all of this is Lynn Hatter, news director with member station WFSU in Tallahassee, Florida, who follows DeSantis's career. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So what does DeSantis's showing in Iowa mean for him? Well, this was a must win for the governor, and it means he lives to campaign in another state. It's only going to get harder for DeSantis from here, right? So coming up next is New Hampshire, where he's even further behind in the polls. And after that is Nikki Haley's home state of South Carolina. You know, the governor has made a name for himself over the past two years, championing so-called anti-woke policies and really pushing back against diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. And he's also been a champion for more scrutiny of public schools for what conservatives like him see as an anti-conservative agenda. But some of that appeal seems to be waning. And here in Florida, he's not proposing any new policies for the legislative session that just started this month. Would you say more about that? I mean, what are Republicans in in Florida saying about DeSantis? Well, Florida Republicans here in general have some split loyalties. There's the camp that's firmly backing DeSantis, which includes our state House Speaker and Senate President, who recently reaffirmed their support for him. But then there are other high-profile Republican leaders who DeSantis has at times clashed with. He clashed with Republican Congressman Byron Donalds, who's Black, over the state's new African-American history teaching standards. Donalds came out against language in them that say some enslaved people benefited from slavery. DeSantis also clashed with Republican Representative Randy Fine, who's Jewish. Fine felt the governor didn't do enough to combat anti-Semitism here in Florida. Fine had supported DeSantis in the past, but he switched his endorsement to former President Donald Trump. You mentioned earlier that Governor DeSantis has been pushing what he's called his war on woke. How, How are voters responding to that? Well, his policies did align with Iowa voters, but there are issues around the governor's personality. Some people say he just doesn't present very well. And he's also based his campaign on trying to out-Trump Trump and appeal to the exact same group that forms the former president's base. And the former president's supporters just seem to like their guy better. So what's next for DeSantis? Well, he's heading to New Hampshire, but he's really looking ahead to South Carolina, which is his first major test in the South. He really wants to perform well there against Haley, but he's got other obstacles before then. And you've already started hearing him try to broaden his message a bit from one of fear to one of hope. Well, as you just mentioned, that South Carolina is Nikki Haley's home state. I mean, she was the governor there. Presumably she has a a base. Realistically, does he think he can compete there? He's... He's going to try. Again, Nikki Haley's home state. DeSantis came in second. He squeaked it out. So he's going to give it a whirl. All right. Lynn Hatter is the news director of member station WFSU in Tallahassee, Florida. Lynn, thank you. You're welcome. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Now that Iowa voters have weighed in, the focus of the Republican presidential nomination turns to New Hampshire. 
Their first-in-the-nation primary may be an opportunity for Nikki Haley. Polls show she has a chance to pull off an upset victory over frontrunner Donald Trump. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, Haley is counting on moderate Republicans, independents, and even some Democrats to give her a boost in the Granite State. Voters like Marie Mulroy of Manchester might represent the key to a Haley victory, or at least a strong showing in next week's primary. She's an unenrolled voter, a so-called independent, who fervently opposes Donald Trump. He doesn't have a moral compass. I don't understand how anybody could vote for him. Mulroy usually votes Democratic and voted for Joe Biden in 2020. But she's so concerned that Trump could win the nomination and return to the White House that she plans to pull a Republican ballot next week to vote against him. She was torn between Chris Christie, who suspended his campaign last week, and Nikki Haley. So now she's all in for Haley. She has some of what he has, but she also has the ability to get elected to beat Trump. And the primary goal is not to ever let Trump back in office again, to be honest. Let's just kick it off with Nikki Haley. There we go. That's New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who has endorsed Haley and has been cheering her on at the many town halls she's been holding across New Hampshire for the past 11 months. Here's Haley speaking recently in Hooksit. We have a country to save, and this is what I will tell you. If you like what I had to say today, go tell 10 people, because we can do this. I trust you. I trust Granite Staters to get this right. In contrast to Trump's divisiveness, Haley strikes a more moderate tone that appeals to many of New Hampshire's independents who make up the state's largest block of voters. Sununu says those voters are a big reason he believes Haley can beat Trump in the primary. He's got a ceiling. People are just tired of the chaos, right? And when you look at the fact that well over 50% of the Republican core base voter wants someone else, the fact that in New Hampshire you're going to have independents that come out, I believe, in record numbers. Believe me, I've been in this game long enough to know that political momentum is real. I think that we're going to be surprised, and I'm not going to underestimate her, and I don't think that anyone else should. This is Kim Rice, a former New Hampshire state rep and a co-chair of Haley's campaign. She agrees with Sununu that Haley can catch Trump with the support of those independents. And even some Democrats. I, for one, know that my daughter switched her party affiliation to vote for Nikki in the primary. Her daughter is not alone. New Hampshire Secretary of State says more than 4,000 New Hampshire Democrats switched their party affiliation to undeclared or Republican ahead of next week's primary. That could help Haley, who's within striking distance of Trump, according to recent polls. Robert Schwartz is the co-founder of Primary Pivot, a super PAC that's urging voters from the political center and the center-left to vote for Haley in the primary as part of an effort to stop Trump. We believe he's an existential threat to democracy. And given that if Trump were to romp in both Iowa and New Hampshire, the nomination would be effectively over, we decided to focus on New Hampshire. Schwartz says Trump is unfit for office because he continues to repeat the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen and because he incited the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So he's urging Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents who plan to vote for President Biden in November to support Haley in the primary. But Kathy Sullivan says there's a better way to beat Trump. Nikki Haley is not the person to stop Donald Trump. The only person who's going to be able to stop Donald Trump is Joe Biden in the November election. Sullivan is the former chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party who's leading a write-in campaign for Biden. 
The president won't be on the primary ballot next week because the Democratic National Committee, at Biden's behest, picks South Carolina to vote first. Sullivan says even if Haley wins in New Hampshire, Trump holds big leads in scores of states that follow, including Haley's home state of South Carolina. So she believes Trump will be the Republican nominee, and Democrats need to get behind Biden now. If you want to beat Donald Trump in November, the best thing you can do is write in Joe Biden on the primary ballot to give Joe Biden a boost of energy and momentum going forward into the campaign. It makes no sense, according to Sullivan, for Democrats to vote for Haley, a staunch conservative who signed some of the most restrictive abortion measures ever passed in South Carolina and who has refused to rule out becoming Trump's running mate. When Haley talks about Trump, she picks her words carefully, saying that he was the right president at the right time, but then says chaos follows him. In her last debate with Ron DeSantis, she was a little more direct in her criticism of Trump. That election, Trump lost it. Biden won that election. I think what happened on January 6th was a terrible day, and I think President Trump will have to answer for it. The New Hampshire primary has a long history of delivering surprises, and next week could be another. But even if Haley beats Trump and bruises the former president, it probably won't be a knockout. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Donald Trump won the Iowa Republican caucus in a landslide with Ron DeSantis in a distant second. It's Tuesday, January 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Republican presidential nominating process now shifts to upcoming primaries starting next week in New Hampshire. Trump advisor Bruce Lavelle says the campaign is gathering steam. We go to South Carolina, we go to New Hampshire. You're going to see, you're going to see a wave that's going to get behind President Trump. We'll also look at the role independent voters may play with polls showing that nearly half of Americans see themselves as politically uncommitted. And this hour, Massachusetts natives Io Adebari and Jennifer Coolidge won big at the 75th Emmy Awards, plus why researchers say AI may make the Internet less fun. Snow and rain today in the 30s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump has won the Iowa Republican caucuses. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reports the race was called while many voters were still at their caucus sites. The race was called so early that there weren't even Trump supporters here yet at the Trump watch party to celebrate it. Later, Trump thanked his allies and voters in his victory speech, but also incorporated heavily from his stump speech. Trump warned the crowd about undocumented immigrants, saying that there's a, quote, invasion at the southern border. He also promoted the lie that he won the 2020 election. Trump is headed next to New Hampshire, which holds its primary next Tuesday, January 23rd. Trump will hold rallies in the state on both tonight and tomorrow night. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News, Des Moines. The former president vanquished his opponents to win the Iowa caucuses. He got more than 50 percent of the vote. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished second, and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley was third. 
They're now campaigning in New Hampshire for next Tuesday's primary. Political science professor Andrew Smith is director of the University of New Hampshire Survey Center. He says Haley has a chance to win that state, but only if registered, undeclared voters turn out for her. If they do come out and vote, uh, our polling is showing strongly that they're going to support Haley. Uh, we're seeing that among uh, um, undeclared voters, Haley was leading Trump by 43 to 17. So if they come out strongly, and by that I mean getting up over 40 percent to 45 percent of the electorate, she's got a chance of winning. But if they don't turn out, and historically undeclared voters don't turn out at the same rate as do registered voters, um, if, if they don't come out, uh, Trump will likely win. He spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy finished fourth in the Iowa Republican caucuses yesterday. He suspended his campaign and has endorsed Donald Trump for president. Iran has launched an attack on the Iraqi Kurdish capital, Erbil. Two business leaders were among several people killed. NPR's Jane Araf reports Iraq says it will raise the attack at the United Nations Security Council. Iran launched the attack late Monday night near a new U.S. consulate complex. But the target wasn't the U.S. Instead, Iran said it was targeting what it called, without any proof, Israeli spy bases. Kurdish media said at least five missiles targeted the home of a prominent Iraqi Kurdish businessman, killing him and another leading Iraqi Kurdish business leader with U.K. citizenship, along with three other people. The government of the Kurdistan region of Iraq denies that the Israeli spy agency operates from its territory. Iraq, which normally maintains warm relations with Iran, said it would raise Iran's infringement of its sovereignty with the UN Security Council. Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman, Jordan. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stocks are lower. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Drivers should be aware of slick road conditions as they head into work this morning. A winter weather advisory is in effect for eastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has more. Well, this isn't a huge storm, but anytime snow is falling during a commute, it can make things tough. And areas of snow will continue to fall this morning. There'll be some lulls at times. We'll also see some mixing come into play with sleet and a change to rain in the city point south, perhaps even a little farther inland this afternoon. Everything's going to wind down 4 to 6 p.m. Snow totals 2 to 4 inches for most, a little less for the south shore to Cape Cod, and perhaps a few higher totals from the Worcester Hills to southwest New Hampshire. There will be some lingering snow-covered spots and slick roads through the evening commute. Temperatures fall during the evening, too, so untreated surfaces will ice up as we drop through the 20s and into the teens, and we won't get out of the upper 20s tomorrow. Governor Maura Healey is launching an effort to give small and diverse businesses a chance at landing state contracts. Instead of automatically renewing them, the state will review contracts to ensure they're awarded equitably. WBWAR's Barbara Moran has more. Healy says her administration will assess and reopen contracts across a range of areas, including information technology, energy, and climate. The goal is to make sure diverse and small businesses have equal chances to compete. For far too long, black business owners and others have struggled to secure state and local contracts. And for too long, we've heard excuses about why that can't be changed. That ends now. Healy is also swearing in the state's first diverse and small business advisory board. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. A local social services group says it's become the target of online misinformation meant to be harmful to immigrants. Members of the Melrose-based Immigrant Support Alliance tell the Boston Herald they've been inundated with negative social media posts in recent days. The group helps connect volunteers with new arrivals in need of housing, transportation or services like English language learning. Four teams hit the ice today for the 45th annual Women's Beanpot Hockey Tournament. Boston University will take on Boston College in the opener this afternoon. Then Northeastern will look to defend its title when it plays Harvard at 7.30. The winners of tonight's game will play in the championship game next week. For the first time ever, that championship game will be held at TD Garden. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. The Celtics are coming off a nine-point win in Toronto. They beat the Raptors last night 105-96. The Seas now have the night off before returning home tomorrow to face off against San Antonio. The Bruins shot out the New Jersey Devils yesterday afternoon. Final score was 3-0. A winter weather advisory is in place as snow falls across the region this morning, eventually mixing with sleet and rain this afternoon. An inch or two is expected to fall in Boston and along the South Shore with up to four inches possible places outside of 495. High temperatures will reach the mid-30s. Tonight, the snow will likely stop in the early evening hours with skies clearing into the night. Temperatures will drop into the teens and 20s. Tomorrow, sunny skies, but it'll be cold and windy. High temperatures will only reach the upper 20s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Former President Donald Trump won overwhelmingly in the Iowa caucuses the first official voting of the 2024 presidential primary. Trump captured just over half of the Republican vote. That was in line with months of Iowa opinion polls. We want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. While Trump ran away with it, the contest for second place was far closer, with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 21 percent and former U.N. Ambassador and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley at 19 percent. Okay, everybody was up late last night, so we're going to hear lots of gravelly voices this morning, beginning with the distinctive voice of NPR's Don Gagne, who's in Des Moines. Don, good morning. Hey, good morning. How's the weather? Uh, Eight below zero, but you know, (laughs) you get used to it. (laughs) Okay, okay, eight below zero, and it was almost that cold last evening when people showed up at these caucus sites to vote. What does Trump's big margin tell you? You know how when we see polls, we're always careful to say, polls say, Mm -hmm. uh, as we should. But sometimes the results come in and the quick, the really quick call last night affirmed the Iowa polls and confirmed that this was just Trump's night, and it put a big exclamation point on it. Again, that's despite the 91 criminal charges Trump faces. Uh, Republicans here clearly not bothered by that. And that cold weather, it does appear to have helped pull down turnout. uh, Compared to the record year, 2016, when Trump was last on the ballot. But look, there's no sense here that greater turnout was going to change these numbers in any meaningful way. 
Well, let's talk about the runners-up, because there was much focus on that and some question about whether Nikki Haley would be second or Ron DeSantis would be second. We will note that by a narrow margin, Ron DeSantis is in second place. What do you take away from that? You know, while it's true being the winner in Iowa doesn't necessarily mean you go on to be the nominee over the years and years, this is clearly a much steeper comeback climb for Haley and DeSantis. In fact, it's a mountain, right? Uh, DeSantis finished second narrowly, and he needed that second place given all that he invested here. You can argue he needed a better second place than he got, but this gives him something to hang on to to fight another day. Here's how he framed the result. Because of your support, in spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. Ticket punched, says DeSantis. What about Haley? Uh, she's got to be a little disappointed, given her recent rise in polling that showed that second place was certainly possible, maybe even likely. But she was always thought to do better in the next state up, right? New Hampshire, where there are more independents and more moderate voters. Those are more her voters. When she spoke last night, she tried to still set up a contrast with Trump ignoring DeSantis. And the question before Americans is now very clear. Do you want more of the same? No. Or do you want a new generation of conservative leadership? And Steve, we should also add here that Vivek Ramaswamy finished in fourth place. And when he met with his supporters, he ended his campaign last night and he endorsed Trump. So those are more votes for Trump to pick up in, uh, in New Hampshire and other states because they were really kind of running in the same lane. Don, uh, thanks as always for your insights. I hope you get some rest on the flight home. Indeed. Thanks. That's NPR's Don Gagne. And as we continue our coverage, pollster Frank Luntz is on the line. Mr. Luntz, welcome back to the program. Well, unfortunately, my voice is going to be grovelly. <laughs> That's but, okay. Uh, That's okay. And, and I will say, it, you never get used to negative seven degrees. Uh, it's okay. Well, that's that's uh, that, that's good to good to keep in mind for future Iowa caucuses if people cover them the way that they have this year. Anyway, thanks for getting up early. Really appreciate it. I want people to know if they don't that you've been a pollster for many many years. You've worked for many Republicans uh, over the years. Although you're more unaffiliated now, you've done many focus groups and so forth. You listen to voters a lot. Um, and so I want to try to get your insights on what's going on here. A year ago, Donald Trump would have been the favorite to be his party's nominee, but I don't think he would have seemed assured of being the nominee. He would not have been as dominant as we see now. What is the shift in thinking, at least among some Republican voters over the past year? Well, I had the chance to attend eight different caucuses. And the one thing that I saw more than anything else is how passionate and decided Trump voters, Republican Trump voters are. There is no shifting, there's no flexibility. If you're for Donald Trump, you're absolutely for Donald Trump. So my recommendation to listeners is to take the numbers seriously. I don't see Trump's weakness. Now things can happen outside the political process. I specifically am referring to the legal mm -hmm. situation that he faces. But Trump people are voting for him, not despite what's going on in the outside world, but almost because of it. I'm just can... still hung up on the idea that you went to eight of these different caucuses. You were driving all over Iowa last night? No. Eight of the caucuses were held in a single place. Oh, I see. East High School. Gotcha. And so I got to move all around there. 
And the process is amazing because you get to walk up to the voters and talk to them and listen to them. And the nomination speeches for Trump were the same. They focused on, on his fighting for them. They focused on him being a victim. They were almost Donald Trump's words th themselves. But those, let, let me just stop you for a second. Those seem like really contradictory ideas. I'm Donald Trump, I'm fighting for you, is different from I'm Donald Trump, I'm a victim, it's all about me. Uh, and just listening to his rhetoric, listening to Trump's own speeches, there's a lot more of the all about me. Do people not hear that side of it? Well, because th that is a really good question. And what he does is the reason why they're attacking me is that they want to attack you and I'm standing in their way. And that's how he links it. And that statement is so appreciated by that Trump, I'd say it's 40% of the Republican Party. And as long as there are multiple candidates in this race, I don't think there's any way to knock him off as the front runner. Let's think about whether the field were to narrow further. We heard earlier from our White House correspondent, Tamara Keith, who's in our studios now, and we'll be hearing from her again in a moment, I believe. But she was observing the two main challengers who remain are Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. If there's an anti-Trump vote at all left in the Republican Party, it seems to be with Haley. But a lot of DeSantis's supporters seem to be on the same page as Trump. The idea being if DeSantis went away, Trump's vote would increase even further. Do you think that's true? I think it's half true, but that's enough for Trump to get the nomination. Of all the people last night, the most disappointed person wasn't Ron DeSantis, even though he expected to do better than what he did. It was actually Nikki Haley, because she needed to come in second to give her enough to propel her to a victory in New Hampshire. Make no mistake, unless Nikki Haley wins in New Hampshire, based on my interviews with Republican voters, then that's it for that's it for her, and he will sail. So we are going to know who's going to be the Republican nominee. I believe seven days from now. Uh, how do things look different for Donald Trump if he makes it through to the general election as the party's nominee? Well, the very thing that makes him so popular among Republicans turns off Democrats and a majority of independents. And in the end, just getting your base vote doesn't elect you. But as weak as Donald Trump is, Joe Biden's support is even weaker. And I'm looking at intensity, I'm looking at the level of passion, the willingness to consider another candidate. We have two flawed, likely nominees, and a, a, an electorate that really doesn't want a rerun of 2020. And if you take a look at America overall, I think they're waking up this morning to the very real likelihood, as you say, that it is Donald Trump and that it is Joe Biden. And I think a lot of people are going to be looking for an alternative. Do you think, oh, when you say an alternative, do you mean something like the no labels movement, which has gotten a lot of ballots or various other candidates who are out there, RFK Jr., we could go on for some time. Right. And those candidates are going to get a fresh look. If any of them gets 15 percent or more, they appear in the debates and then they get a national platform. One other, thing that, one other thing, that, let me just ask quickly about one other thing. Uh, we hear from more progressive voters who are upset with Joe Biden uh, about, for example, the war in Israel, a war between Israel and Hamas and his strong support for Israel. Can you imagine large numbers of Democratic voters saying, I'm going to sit this one out. It doesn't matter if Donald Trump is president again. Large, meaningful numbers. Uh, well, the 18 to 29 year vote who has abandoned Joe Biden now, I believe they come back. But African-American women, 
Lat uh, men, I'm sorry, Latinos have shifted away from Biden, and that vote is gettable. In the end, though, it's not because of Israel Hamas. It's because of Joe Biden's age. And you can't message age. It is what it is. Frank Luntz is a pollster of many years' experience who was at eight different caucus meetings last night in Iowa. Mr. Luntz, I hope you get some rest. Thank you. And our White House correspondent, Tamara Keith, is here in Studio 31 in Washington, D.C. Tam, what do you make of what you heard there? Frank is right uh, that... I saw you nodding a lot yeah, when he was talking. Frank is absolutely right that the the Biden campaign has a challenge in that you can't fix President Biden's age. However, their plan is to, uh, one, remind people that Donald Trump is not young either, uh, and also try to make this not a referendum on the incumbent president, but a referendum on the former incumbent president and what he might mean for American democracy, that turning off um, independent voters that, that Trump's uh, election denialism has proven to be able to do. Um, the Biden campaign also is very clear that um, one of their persuasion challenges is simply persuading people who are completely turned off to even show up and vote, um, much less to vote for Joe Biden, but even just to, to to engage in the process when they're completely frustrated with institutions. People who might never vote for Donald Trump also might not vote for Joe Biden. That's their concern. That is their concern. RKR White House correspondent Tamara Keith on this morning after the Iowa caucuses, which Donald Trump dominated with about 51 percent of the vote, Ron DeSantis in second, Nikki Haley in third, and we go on to New Hampshire. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we delve into the details of last night's landslide win for Donald Trump in the Iowa caucuses. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was a distant second with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley at his heels. It's 820. A new Texas law going into effect soon will ban rules guaranteeing water breaks for outdoor workers, and Texans are pushing back. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. There's a winter weather advisory in effect as snow continues to fall across the region. The snow may be mixed with rain and sleet at times this afternoon and roads may be slippery and icy in spots. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Up to two inches of snow is expected in all for Boston and along the South Shore. Outside of 495, up to four inches are possible. The snow tapers off tonight as temperatures fall to the upper teens and low 20s. Clearing skies overnight make way for a sunny day tomorrow, but highs will only be in the upper 20s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Workday. With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From ECMC Foundation, working to improve higher education for career success among underserved populations through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering small ship experiences with a shore excursion included in every port and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Learn more at viking.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Last night, the TV industry finally had the party it has been waiting for, the Emmys. Postponed by the dual actors and writers strike from last summer, the Emmy Awards were also celebrating their 75th anniversary. Joining us to take us through TV's big night is NPR's Mandalit Del Barco. Mandalit, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Let's begin with the night's big winners. Any sweeps or surprises? Well, actually, it was it was maybe not surprising that the HBO series Succession, about a media dynasty inspired by Rupert Murdoch, picked up six awards. It won for Outstanding Drama Series and also awards for its creator and writer, Jesse Armstrong, and actors Kieran Culkin, Sarah Snook, and Matthew McFadyen. And the culinary series The Bear also got six Emmys for Outstanding Comedy Series and its actors, Jeremy Allen White and Ayo Edeberry. Um, finally, the, in the limited series category, The Beef won five Emmys for Outstanding Series, as well as for actors Stephen Yun and Ali Wong and writer-director Lee Sung Jin. So it doesn't sound like there are too many surprises there, but plenty of sweeps. Right. So, so obviously, with the actors fully back in the mix, you know, we got all the full glam, right? Well, are there any memorable <laughs> speeches or moments on stage? Well, you know, this time as the Emmys celebrated 75 years of television, the ceremony was filled with nostalgia. There were a lot of familiar TV theme songs and cast reunions on recreated sets of All in the Family, Cheers, The Sopranos, Grey's Anatomy, Martin, Ally McBeal, even SNL's Weekend Update. And some TV legends were pre uh, presented the awards, including Carol Burnett. But among the winners, the most memorable speech came from Nisi Nash-Betz, who picked up an Emmy for her role in Dahmer Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. And you know who I want to thank? I want to thank me for believing in me and doing what they said I could not do. And I want to say to myself in front of all you beautiful people, go on, girl, with your bad self. You did that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she also gave a shout out to what she called unheard yet over-policed black and brown women like Sandra Bland and Breonna Taylor. As we, we mentioned earlier, this was a delayed Emmys. Did the strikes come up in the speeches or in the host Anthony Anderson's monologue? Well, you know, so so this ceremony was supposed to have happened last September, but the writers and actors were still on strike. They were on the picket lines and Hollywood productions were shut down. Contract negotiations with the studios and streamers were contentious. But Michelle, I was surprised that there was only one mention of all of that by Sophia Manfredi. She's one of the writers of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. We also want to thank our union, the WGA, and all the other unions that backed with so much solidarity. Um, the strike felt long. It did not feel lonely. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I do have to mention here at Mandalit that the tonight's awards were on the same day as Martin Luther King Day and the Iowa caucuses. I just wondered if there were any political moments, which sometimes happens. Well, you know, during the ceremony, the organization GLAAD was honored for its decades of advocacy for LGBTQ characters and stories on TV. That was one reference to protecting and showcasing queer stories. And when the reality competition show RuPaul's Drag Race won an Emmy once again, RuPaul Charles directly addressed the recent backlash against drag queens. Listen, if a drag queen wants to read you a story at a library, listen to her because... Knowledge is power. And since the ceremony was on MLK Day, the Emmys ended with one of the most powerful TV moments ever, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech from 1963. All right. Thanks for catching us up, Madalit. Thank you so much. Madalit Barco. 
Okay, let's talk about the other voting. The Iowa caucuses last night, where Donald Trump claimed a 30-point victory over Ron DeSantis, who was in a distant second place, Nikki Haley in third. Iowa Public Radio's Sheila Brummer spent the evening at one of the caucus sites, one in Sioux City. Hi there. Hey, good morning. You know, in all the years that I've covered politics, been to Iowa, done lots of different things in almost every state, I've never literally been inside the room for an Iowa caucus event. What's it like? It's it's a little different. You know, the Democrats, they go to corners and, and it's very vocal and they jockey around to figure out where they're going to be. But the Republicans, they get together, they pick out who's going to be like going to the the county caucus to see who's going to eventually maybe go and be a state delegate. But what they do is they get a piece of paper, they write down the candidate's name, mm -hmm. and then a precinct chair counts, you know, who got what. And then they read it over a loudspeaker to everybody so everyone knows before they leave how the precincts turned out. We had six of them here. Um, six below zero, if I'm not mistaken, was the temperature at caucus time. Did that affect turnout in your location? You know, I kind of thought it would, but they had 25% more people show up. We're at Western Iowa Tech Community College, and I think what happened is this area had a lot of storms. It was a week of nasty weather, a couple of snowstorms, a blizzard, um, the coldest air in a long time. And I think people maybe just wanted to get out of the house, maybe. And I know um, the former president, his supporters, really wanted to make a big showing, and that's what they did. Well, let's talk about that, because it was thought that the weather would depress turnout. Don Gagne noted that it was not as dramatic as 2016, when Trump was on his way up the first time and there was a record turnout. But still, it was a bigger turnout than some, some other years. Did you hear from people who said, I think it is vitally important for me to show up, even though I know how the result is probably going to come out? Well, they didn't want to have that repeat of 2016 when Ted Cruz won. They wanted to get out, and they wanted to make sure that their candidate's going to be the one on the ballot in November. Did anybody that you met last evening address the downsides of this candidate, that they are voting for someone who's been indicted multiple times, who has all the distractions of trials potentially during the general election if he's nominated, would have all kinds of questions about what would happen if he's elected after being indicted? Well, supporters here for Trump say that he is he's been wrongly accused. He didn't do it. Now, DeSantis and Haley supporters, they say the country needs someone else who doesn't have all that baggage. And there was even one person that said, you know what, I did support Trump in 2016 and 2020, but I'm moving on to a different candidate. That's Iowa Public Radio's Sheila Brummer. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR each morning. Stay with us today for complete results and analysis from the Iowa caucus and how they'll shape what's next in campaign 2024. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Researchers say the Internet is becoming less fun for a lot of people, and the cause may be artificial intelligence. It's 8.29. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
North Korean leader Kim Jong-un says he wants the country's constitution to formally name South Korea as its main enemy. NPR's Anthony Kuhn is in Seoul. In a speech to parliament, Kim restated his position that he's dropping a decades-long policy of seeking reunification with the South. He added that the North's constitution should be changed to say that if war breaks out, the North will occupy and annex the South's territory. Kim said the North has no intention of starting a war, but it won't avoid one either. Former President Donald Trump won yesterday's Iowa caucuses easily, capturing more than 50 percent of the vote as he seeks the Republican presidential nomination. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished a distant second. Nikki Haley came in third. Ahead of Iowa, political analysts described the caucuses as the battle for second place. The GOP contest now shifts to next week's New Hampshire primary, as Josh Rogers with New Hampshire Public Radio reports. The Republican electorate in New Hampshire is more moderate than in Iowa. Uh, New Hampshire is among the least religious states in the country. And there's polling that shows most Republicans here support abortion rights. So it's different, and social conservatives aren't the loud force they are in Iowa. Vivek Ramaswamy finished fourth in Iowa. He's suspending his campaign. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The number of people searching for homes to buy in the state still far outweighs the number of homes on the market. That's according to the latest report from the Massachusetts Realtors Association. WBOR's Josie Guarino reports. 2023 ended with home sales continuing to slide. Amy Wallach of the Massachusetts Realtors Association says that's due to a lack of inventory. December of 2023 showed the lowest number of single-family homes and condominiums for sale in a given month since we started reporting data back in 2004. Wallach says the housing supply was down nearly 5% for single-family homes and roughly 8% for condos. That scarcity has pushed home prices up by 7%. And the market isn't expected to improve anytime soon. She says the housing shortage is statewide. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Investigators are identifying the three people killed in a small plane crash in Greenfield over the weekend. Officials say the owner of Fly Lugu Flight School in Westfield was among the victims. A second flight instructor and student pilot were also killed. The cause of the crash remains under investigation. The National Labor Relations Board will hear complaints from Trader Joe's employees from Hadley, Massachusetts today. The employees allege the grocery store chain retaliated for union activity. The Hadley store was the first Trader Joe's to unionize back in 2022. Trader Joe's did not respond to a request for comment. It's 833. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics are celebrating a road win in Toronto. They beat the Raptors on their home court last night by nine points. Final score was 105-96. to They'll return to the Garden to play San Antonio tomorrow. The Bruins are also celebrating a win. They shut out the New Jersey Devils yesterday 3-0. to Snow is expected to fall throughout the day today. It may be mixed with rain and sleet this afternoon, and there's a winter weather advisory in effect. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Boston and the South Shore may see one to two inches of accumulation. Outside of 495, we may see up to four inches. The snow slowly tapers off this evening as it falls to the low 20s and upper teens. 
clearing overnight and sunny tomorrow with highs in the upper 20s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant, a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Former President Donald Trump won decisively in last night's Iowa caucuses. Gary Leffler is a precinct captain who was supporting the former president. The people are just really more energized than I've ever seen them. And I was there in 16 and 20, and they are more organized, they are more dedicated, they're more enthused. Trump's 38% margin of victory was a new record for a contested Republican Iowa caucus. It left Florida Governor Ron DeSantis a distant second, with former South Carolina governor and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley right at his heels. Iowans Elliot and Diana Adkins say they like Haley's approach. I think she makes a lot of sense with the issues that are important to me. The economy is a big one. Inflation is huge. I think the border crisis is a big issue to me also, and I like her stand on that, what she's planning on doing. I, I really like that she has experience with um, world issues. Haley is a former United Nations ambassador. She served in the Trump administration. Austin Harris is an Iowa state lawmaker who says he voted for Trump twice, but now supports Haley and thinks, quote, she might be able to unite our country. I got nothing against the other candidates in the race, but none of this, our policies matter if we don't win the general election. I think she's our best shot at doing it. With the Iowa caucuses in the rearview mirror, third place finisher Nikki Haley still says the country wants a change and she hopes to be that change. You know what I'm talking about. It's both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. They have more in common than you think. 70% of Americans don't want another Trump-Biden rematch. The former South Carolina governor was edged out of second place by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in Iowa. But as you have probably heard by now, Trump won the contest with just over 50 percent of the vote. Kirsten Kukowski is an advisor to Nikki Haley's Super PAC, and we called her for her take on last night's results. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So realistically, what is Nikki Haley's path now? Here's why I say that. The primary process is very front-loaded and increasingly winner-take-all or winner-take-most, talking about the delegates here. So realistically, how does Nikki Haley not hit a wall pretty soon? Well, I would say, honestly, what happened last night um, was what we had been told was going to happen for months. So I don't know that anything really changed um, last night. I think if you had said that Nikki Haley was going to essentially tie... Ron DeSantis, um, you know, a, a couple months or even a couple of weeks ago, I think people would have laughed. So I think Nikki is in a good spot. I think that she, as always, was planning to go to New Hampshire, which is um, a different state than, than Iowa. Uh, for your listeners, New Hampshire voters are much different than Iowa voters, um, and they are much more um, likely to support a Nikki Haley candidacy. So her numbers in, in New Hampshire have been really very strong, and she's been closing that gap with Donald Trump. Um, New Hampshire once was a state that really carried and, and nudged Donald Trump over over the cliff in 2016, but this year it is much different. And so our path is 
you know, hard pivot right now to New Hampshire. And then obviously she was uh, governor of South Carolina. So that is the next state. And then there's there's Michigan and then a, mm-hmm. a flurry of states on Super Tuesday. So okay. I think it actually looks pretty good for Nikki. All right. So let's jump ahead to Super Tuesday. More than a month away, Ron DeSantis already headed for South Carolina this week. But the former president is out polling Nikki Haley in her own home state. How do you explain that? Well, he's also an incumbent president, right? This is a little bit of an unprecedented situation that I think we can't gloss over. He's running as 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 an incumbent president. He was already in the White House for four years. Um, He predicted a 60-point win or 60-point margin in Iowa, and he got just over 50. So that means 50% of the GOP is looking for somebody other than Donald Trump, and that means that. If you, you know, if he really has some questions that he needs to answer in the GOP, if more than if half half of the party is still not with him, okay, okay, okay. To convince I, them. I understand that, but then <laughs> so. you've got, but then you've got, okay, so then you've got sixteen other states and territories at stake yep. on Super Tuesday. How does she manage that? I mean, she did a big spend in Iowa and New Hampshire. I take your point on the her appeal to what. She sees the independent voters in New Hampshire. But then after that, it would seem to me moving solidly into Trump territory, particularly in the South. So how does that how does that help her? Well, I don't know about that so much. You have a lot of different states, several states in the Midwest, Michigan being one of them right before Super Tuesday. Um, You also have states like Minnesota, California. Um, So you do have some southern states, but you also have some Midwestern and Western states that are going to pop up here. Um, so I do think that, you know, a strong finish in New Hampshire, which is what the focus is for the next week. And then obviously for an entire month, all we'll be doing is talking about South Carolina. So okay. get ready. I do have to clarify I think, that I do have to clarify that President Trump is not an incumbent. I just have to be really clear about that. I think most people know that. I'm sure that's understood. a misspeak. He's so, acting as an incumbent. He's so acting I, as an incumbent. You think he has point. incumbent advantages. Okay, let's go to our senior White House correspondent, Tamara Keith, who's here to talk. But I still want to go, go sort of talk about the kind of how the process process works against Haley at this point, or at least it advantages the former president. Right. There are so many states that um, because it is Donald Trump's party, because he is functioning like an incumbent, even though he is not an incumbent, uh, there are so many state uh, GOPs that have changed the rules or or otherwise the rules are um, winner take all or get 51 percent and you're winner take all. Um and another challenge for Haley is that she has been making a case about electability, which is an important part of her case, that uh, when it comes to the general election, she has a much better chance against Joe Biden, according to pretty much all polls, than former President Trump. However, in the Iowa caucuses, as, as uh, voters were going in, they were making their choices, uh, it was very clear that voters in Iowa, at least, who cared a lot about electability chose Trump. They didn't choose her. So, Kirsten Kokowski, if you're still with us, how do you answer that? Well, I answer that as Iowa is a lot different than New Hampshire, than is South Carolina, than is all the states I'm looking at in front of me uh, that are Super Tuesday, Colorado, um, you know, I, I, Minnesota, North Carolina. These are states that um, I don't know that it is as cut and dry. And I think that in some ways this is just beginning. Like I said at the top of this interview, what happened last night was what was supposed to happen for months. We have been waking up for, you know, all of this, all of last year, 2023, being told that Donald Trump was the runaway winner. He got just over 50% of the GOP, which means, again, 
almost 50% of the GOP is not sold on him. Okay, before we Iowa let you go, she came... about as Trumpy of a state as mm-hmm. you can get. And so I think I would just push back on the rest of the calendar looks a lot different than the Iowa okay, electorate. Okay, before we let you go, she said last night, Nikki Haley said last night that Iowa made the GOP primary contest a two-person race. She came in third. So how is this a two-person race? Again, if people had told me even two weeks ago that Nikki Haley would have tied Ron DeSantis in Iowa, which is where he spent all of his money and all of his time, okay. I think people would have laughed me all out right. of the diner. That's, so, that's I think Kirsten, in a great spot. All right. That's Kirsten Kukowski. She's an advisor to Nikki Haley's uh, Super PAC. And we were also joined by White House correspondent Tamara Keith. And this is Morning Edition from NPR News. And I'm Michelle Martin. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how AI is being talked about at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Snow falls throughout the day today. It may be mixed with rain and sleet at times. Boston and the South Shore may see up to two inches. Outside of 495, there may be up to four inches of accumulation. Temperatures will rise to the mid-30s. This evening, the snow tapers off and it falls to the upper teens. Skies clear overnight and stay clear tomorrow for us to enjoy some sun, but it'll be cold with temperatures only in the 20s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Museum, Family Fun All Winter, Sock Skating, Hands-On Science, Art, and 22 exhibits to explore and discover. BostonChildrensMuseum.org and BU's Sargent College. Advance your career with an MS in nutrition in two semesters. Priority deadline February 15th. BU.edu slash Sargent. Northeastern University is launching a new apprenticeship program. The partnership with British company Multiverse is the first of its kind for both parties. Officials tell the Boston Business Journal the 12-month program will be different than existing Northeastern co-ops. The program will be focused on applied analytics. There's a new head of the MIT Museum. MIT officials tell the Boston Globe Michael Gorman will step into that role this summer. Gorman takes over for longtime director John Durant, who led the museum for nearly two decades. Gorman previously founded a science museum and directed other institutions. A new report finds that Massachusetts is one of the worst states to drive in. Wallet Hub ranked the Bay State 45th on its list of the best places to drive. Rush hour traffic, maintenance costs, and road quality all contributed to the ranking. Iowa was ranked number one as the best state to drive in. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The Internet feels different to a lot of people lately. Search results are increasingly full of junk. Social media feeds are mucked up with spam. NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen asked what's going on. 
There are few people more chronically online than Corey Sika. He's the former editor-in-chief of the website Gawker. He's now an editor at New York Magazine, and he's always scrolling. Not too long ago, he got COVID and wanted to know how badly the virus was spreading and when he could return to work. I literally couldn't. I just gave up. Like, it was just dead links and random spam and just sponsored garbage and old pages. It was just absolute nonsense. Sika is not alone. More and more, both professional observers like Sika and everyday users are complaining that the internet is more chaotic than ever. And it's not just a handful of anecdotes. Experts say there is a real shift underway. The quality of online platforms is degrading. Yet for the big ones, at least, most people feel like they have no other choice. Google is being inundated with AI-generated clickbait, and social media feels like an online shopping mall. Zizi Papakarisi studies internet trends at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Facebook, Instagram, many of these platforms have been excessively commercialized to the point where they lost their immediacy, the sense of place they afforded, the sense of community they facilitated, the sense of belonging they offered. Facebook has driven away its youngest users. Elon Musk's changes to the platform formerly known as Twitter have led to an exodus. Papakarisi says people are moving away from posting publicly on social media. They felt fake, you know, so people started turning elsewhere. By elsewhere, Papakarisi means people are spending more time sending private direct messages and text messages. And they're flocking to smaller online communities found on sites like Reddit and Discord. It's more personal, less cluttered, and you probably won't run into creepy product placement. There's, of course, a downside, too. And it might sound like an old problem. Echo chamber, anyone? If you retreat just to spaces where you're with people you already know, then you lose a lot of what made social media and makes a website like Twitter so fascinating and engaging, which is encountering new people and new ideas. That's technology writer Max Reed. He says while being in a filter bubble is certainly nothing new, the algorithms that determine what people see on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube have gotten hyper-individualized and that maybe you don't have the same kind of universal experience that you might have felt. And I would argue that this is not that different from if you were a frequent user of the internet in the 1990s or in the early 2000s. Back when going online meant visiting an individual website. Imagine that. The time before Google, Amazon, Twitter, Instagram, and the rest became the main tunnels we use to navigate the messy world of the internet. One thing New York Magazine editor Sika has noticed, being new is no longer a priority on many social media feeds, which he says is adding to this moment of being disoriented online. Now, TikTok, Instagram, even Twitter, stuff is days, weeks, months old when you see it. And it's wild because you're just seeing this thing and you're like, oh, well, this is happening. And that's not what that means anymore if you're just seeing it. For Sika, at least, one bright spot of the newly chaotic web has been, well, email. I got an email from an old friend the other day and I was like, oh, like she had news and she was like, I was like, wow, I'm opening an email and answering it. This is like, this is wild. <laughs> it was like a real flashback experience. It says a lot about the state of the internet in 2024 if the best interaction you have online comes in the form of an email. Bobby Allen, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have news of a missile attack on a Greek-owned ship off the coast of Yemen. Separately, U.S. officials say they seized Iranian-supplied weapons bound for Houthi militants during an operation last week. It's 849. 
WBUR supporters include Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer. The New England Patriots announced they'd move up Gerard Mayo to head coach to replace the legendary Bill Belichick. Mayo is half his age, black, and has the full faith of the team's owners. Robert Kraft was so committed to Gerard Mayo that he essentially made him head coach in waiting. I'm Juana Summers. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Former President Donald Trump won the Iowa caucuses last night in the first major contest of the Republican presidential race. United Nations officials say widespread famine is taking over Gaza as the Israel-Hamas conflict continues. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today is pressing global leaders for continued aid at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90. WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. Watch out for slick spots on the roads with snow expected all day today, possibly mixed with rain and sleet this afternoon. An inch or two of accumulation is expected for Boston and the South Shore. Highs will be in the mid-30s. The snow ends this evening as temperatures fall to the upper teens and skies clear overnight. Sunny tomorrow in the upper 20s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. The world takes on artificial intelligence at Davos. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by JLL. For 240 years, JLL has been committed to offering trusted and innovative solutions in leasing, management, investment strategies, and technology. JLL.com. See a brighter way. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. First, congressional leaders have come to an agreement to kick the government shutdown can down the road a little further. They unveiled a short-term spending bill that would keep federal agencies going until the beginning of March needs to be passed and signed by Friday, or else government agencies overseeing transportation and housing, among other things, run out of money. The first full day of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, is underway. This is the meeting where world leaders hash out solutions to global challenges. One of those uh, challenges this year is artificial intelligence. War, election integrity, and growing economic inequality are also up there. Marketplace's Nova Sappho is here with more. Good morning. Let's start with AI. What are we hearing? Yeah, uh, several things. One is a survey from consulting firm PwC tracking what CEOs are thinking about, and they're worried about disruptions brought on by AI and climate change. And 45% of the CEOs surveyed said their company might not survive a decade without reinvention. 
Uh, in the more immediate term, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella told a forum on the sidelines of the main event that he's thinking about the U.S. elections and how the company can prevent the spread of misinformation, especially AI-generated misinformation. And separately, Microsoft's partner OpenAI put out a note about some of its election-related efforts, including preventing developers from creating chatbots which impersonate politicians or government agencies. Mm, all right, so that's AI. What else has come out of Davos so far? What what might we expect? Well, uh, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is there, so expect an effort to bring focus back to his country's financial and military needs. The Israel-Hamas war will continue to be a big topic. It already is. We've already heard this morning from Qatar's prime minister talking about Red Sea shipping disruptions, essentially saying that until the Israel war ends uh, with Hamas, that war ends, uh, that the Yemenis will likely continue to attack cargo ships there. All right, Marketplaces, Nova Safo, thank you so much. You're welcome. Boeing says it plans to increase quality inspections of its 737 MAX 9 planes after an unused door blew off an Alaska Airlines plane mid-flight. Boeing stock is down 2.4% in pre-market trading. Let's see how the rest of the market is doing. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down in the 2 to 3 tenths percent range. The Dow futures down 68 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.011%. One more number, 114%. That is how much the fortunes of the five richest people in the world have increased since 2020, 114%. This is according to Oxfam, which says the world could get its first trillionaire within the decade, while nearly 5 billion people have been made poorer since the pandemic. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking, exploring the world in comfort. With a fleet of small ships, Viking offers travel experiences for the thinking person. Discover more at Viking.com. And by C3 Generative AI, verified traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. Lebanon was just pulling itself out of a five-year-long recession and economic crisis, and then the Israel-Gaza war erupted. The economy is now on track to slide back into recession for the year, according to the World Bank. Lebanon is heavily reliant on tourism and hospitality sectors that do not thrive on war. The BBC's Hannah McCarthy reports from Beirut. We start in the Middle East, where security forces in southern Israel have moved to a war footing to combat a surprise attack by the Palestinian militant group Hamas. When the war the between Israel and Hamas began on the 7th of October, it quickly spread to southern Lebanon, where Hezbollah, an Iran-backed ally of Hamas, began exchanging fire with Israeli forces along the blue line that separates the two countries. The war is happening in Gaza, but it's also happening in Lebanon. This is something sometimes people forget or is not very covered in the news. Joseph Saez had only just opened Levant, a store specializing in Lebanese baked goods in Beirut a few weeks before the war began. I lived 10 years in Paris and I got back to Beirut six months ago. Since October, tens of thousands of people have fled their homes in southern Lebanon and many countries have advised their citizens against traveling to Lebanon, with several airlines cutting their flights to Beirut. All the foreigners that were in Beirut, be it the tourists or the one who were living here, expats or volunteers with NGOs, and they left within days. The lack of flights and foreign visitors hit vital tourist revenues, says Sami Zougab, an economist at the Policy Initiative in Beirut. 
if we had assumed a tourist revenue similar to what we had last year, for example, of around $1,500 per passenger, we're looking at something closer to around $300 million in losses, only from the tourist revenues. He says that fewer flights and visitors have also reduced the flow of foreign currency into Lebanon, which has a cash-based economy after its banking sector collapsed. Lebanon also imports cash, and much of this cash that was being shipped through the airport. During the first month of the war, the Lebanese restaurant sector experienced an 80% drop in business, hitting owners like Joseph Sayej hard. Sales went down. Coming back here, I knew that at some point, eventually something would happen. Didn't expect that it would be that big and it would be that quick, actually. The holiday season drew some Lebanese expats back from abroad, bringing with them fresh dollars and euros. I spoke to Danny Boumaroun, a Lebanese-American music producer, about how the holiday season had felt in Beirut this year. Things are starting to feel a bit normal. Beirut is pretty busy, but not as not nearly as much as usual. This year it feels off. Obviously, things are uncertain and no one knows what's going to happen. Maya Noon from the syndicate that represents restaurant owners in Lebanon says that the hospitality sector is determined to keep its doors open. The restaurant sector has always been one of these sectors that were like really behind the economy in Lebanon. She says they'll keep operating as the Hamas-Israel war continues with no end in sight. I'm the BBC's Hannah McCarthy for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Benishore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.